Hey, you're listening to the Say OK Creative Podcast, a podcast where we discuss creativity, process, business, and more with the goal to inspire and equip both young creatives and entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Jaden Seke, and it's a privilege to have you listening in on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Chris Doe from the future, a YouTube channel with over 550,000 subscribers, where Chris and his team talk on the business of design and the design of business. Wherever you're listening from, whether in the car, subway, or at work, have your notes app open because Chris is about to drop some incredible tips and tricks which will help you grow as a creative or entrepreneur. So for the first time, let's give a big welcome to the one and only Christo from the future and blind. Yeah, I'm so excited to be speaking with Christo today. So welcome, Chris. Thank you so much. Such an honor to be your very first guest. Yeah, I'm really pumped to chat with you today. Um, you're a bit of a legend in the design and creative business world, um, but for those listening who haven't heard of you before, Chris, could you quickly introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Chris Doe, and I founded this company called Blind, which is a motion design firm based in Santa Monica, California. I've been running that, that company since 1995 as a sole owner. About five years ago, I started this other company, previously known as The School, Now the Future, where we started to teach creative people the business of design and the design of business. That now has become my sole obsession in life, and I've pretty much essentially stopped taking on service work and I'm focusing on creating content for creatives. Awesome. I think there's like no better way to describe you, Chris, than like the Spider-Man of visual creativity. I like that. <laughs> I've heard of your story of how you came upon design, and it's almost like you're a bit by the design bug, as I'd say, and you became a bit of a hero helping creatives of all ages and stages unlock their creative gifts and pursue their passions. Um, you've described your discovery of gra- uh, graphic design as the scene from Pulp Fiction, where John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson open the briefcase of money and the light shines out of it. It's one of like those cloud parting moments. Yeah. Uh, could you share the story of how you entered the design world as a young person? First of all, Jaden, I love the two references. <laughs> the, you know, you're, you got me at Spider-Man and bit by the bug. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I'm a Marvel comic books um, person myself. So, so in, in my instance, the the magical moment, the, the case opening up, now there was not a case of cash, it wasn't that obvious, but it was this idea that I wanted to be a creative human being. I just didn't know what shape that would take. And not having a lot of examples, this is pre-internet, this is the 80s now, I'm trying to figure out like what my life is going to be like. Or, I'm sorry, the 90s. And right. I'm, I'm not quite sure. It, it's not until I'm sent on an errand to pick up some typesetting, which I didn't even know what that was back then, that I met my very first real-life graphic designer. And when I entered his studio and saw everything that I could not visualize in my head, it just appeared before me. So as I stepped across the threshold of his home office, I stepped into this world, and this would change my life forever. I saw on his desk, a, a very classic Mac 512K beige, all over nice. the computer. A massive box, which I later discovered was a laser printer. And he had a drafting table with all the things that you would normally think of if you were going to be a designer. T-square triangles, rapidiograph pens and markers, comps of different packages, and it just blew my mind. I knew then and there that I was going to be a radioactive, no, I was gonna be a, a, a graphic designer. Yeah, awesome, that's so cool. Yeah, um, so you were a tracer, is that right? <laughs> yes, I was. I was a tracer. I was inking over my boss's drawings. And it was at a silkscreen shop. 
Yeah, I think um, what you're saying, you know, back then, you know, with all the, um, you know, vintage Macs and stuff and how the world had changed so much since then as a graphic designer, you know, you've got great resources like, you know, like the future um, to help young creatives grow. So could you like kind of like talk about the contrast of entering the design world back then versus like some of the creatives you hear of nowadays? If that makes right. sense. So pretty much by the sound of your voice and everybody that is your age, it's hard for you guys to imagine a life pre-internet. And yeah, for me, crazy. That, that was a reality. <laughs> so this is when you have to go to the library, you have to look up people's phone numbers in the yellow pages and make phone calls. And this is pre-cell phones. This is the life in the world that I was living in. So the resources that were available to us were very finite. So back then, it, when you call vintage, was cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, desktop publishing, True, yeah. year one, right? This was an amazing thing. So when the, the laser printer came to life and it would whirl and, and kick out this heat, and then all of a sudden, a sheet of paper would come out, and he showed it to me. I thought it was magical. Now, this printer, bear in mind, probably cost seven or $8,000, printed wow. at 300 DPI, and it's as big as a small refrigerator, maybe a little bit bigger. Jesus, that's insane. And now you can think about like buying something at um, Staples for $300 and getting a printer that is not that much bigger than your laptop. Yeah. That's, that's where the world has come. With that, all the things that have changed are in parallel. Like the printer doesn't evolve by itself. The computers, the, the phone that you have in your pocket is probably 100 times more powerful than that Macintosh that Dean was his name used in that day and age. There's so much that you can do now in the palm of your hands that we sometimes take for granted. Now, yeah, there's also true. this information revolution too, that there are creators such as myself, because as much as I like to be the only one who does this, I'm obviously not. There's an abundant amount of resources. The vast, the internet is a vast and free media playground. And just about anything that you want to learn can be found mostly for free on the internet if you know how to search. Yeah, that's really an um, insightful thought. Like, I think us young people take it for granted, you know, you can just hop on Google or, you know, YouTube if you don't know the answer. Um, yeah, so um, I've got a question from someone. They asked, how do you most, uh, sorry, how did you most efficiently spend your time when you were at uni? Because you went to design school, is that right? Yeah, I went to Art Center in Pasadena. Yeah, so they were wondering, how did you most efficiently spend your time when you were at uni and were learning how to design? They are often told right. by the lecturers to sit down and work nine to five, Monday to Friday, as if we were in a, uh, they were in a job scenario. But would you recommend this and how did you work? Okay, so we're all given the exact same number of hours in every single day, whether you're rich, poor, if you're black, white, or Asian. It's the same amount of hours. Yeah. The question of highly productive people and why they're able to seemingly stretch or steal more time, it's like, how do they do that? One, I think they have a very clear goal in their mind. What is it that you want to do? Because when you get clear about your goals, it allows you to make better decisions. And making a decision is hard without a clear goal. At that time when I was going to school, my goal was very clear. To literally be the best designer in my class. Mm. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to rank at the very top. And there was an objective way to measure this. Because you could submit your portfolio every single semester to get it graded from a score of 1 to 100. And my goal was to be the highest score person. Wow, that's so inspiring. And I was able to do that. Not every term, not every term, but most terms. And I felt like, wow, this is really good. So that means other people who are thinking about maybe going to a party, chilling out, or just hanging, do whatever you do in college. My decision was, how do I be that number one person? Well, when they're doing that, I'm going to spend my time in the computer lab. And when they're out partying or drinking or fraternizing with other people, I'll be in the library 
looking at books and magazines and consuming as much visual information as I could. Even today, even today with the, the internet being vast and powerful as it is, there are still things, resources, pictures, photos, articles, documents that have not yet been scanned and documented in SEO and mm. indexed so that you can find easily. So being there in that space, I always wondered, where is everybody else? Because I'm going to be here. Now, the idea of working nine to five is a crazy idea to Definitely. me. It's If this is what you love, if this is your passion, there is no punch in, there's no punch out. This is what you love. If you're in uni and your, your desire is to be a fashion designer, an industrial designer, or a graphic designer, this is your life. This is your blood. It should not, there should not be any separation. So I would be shocked if anybody can go to school and work from nine to five and just clock out at five and be done. Mm. This is it. And if you don't feel that same passion, that love, the same energy, there's going to be somebody in uni that's going to be like me, just 20 years old, who's going to outmaneuver, outhustle, and outproduce you every single day. And if you're not number one, then you might as well pack it in as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, wow. That's really a uh, really great way of putting it. Um, and you mentioned portfolios in there. Like now, every day, and probably back then too, you definitely need a portfolio. Uh, credibility is huge. But for young creatives who might be in high school, uni, or, or are working, um, but want to sw uh, switch career paths and are skilled in design, or at least interested in it, uh, they don't have a portfolio yet or just have student work, what would you recommend their first step being? Like hustling to work with small local companies who aren't the type of companies they want to work for? Um, what other methods would you recommend to get them out of the idea or passion stage into actual playing clients? I think when you're young and you're starting out, I think the tendency and the desire is to work with real clients. And I can understand that, but I would encourage you not to do it. Right. The reason why is because you're still figuring yourself out and the client is probably going to underpay you. You're going to be in overhead and you're going to stress out. And you're going to do work that's highly compromised mm. because you're not that stage in the game where you have a lot of credibility and you're, you're not going to be attracting any kind of client. The only kind of client you're going to attract is one that can afford to pay you something and you'll say yes. So the work that you produce, though real in quotes, is really boring. For sure. And people ask this quite often is, if it's not a real project, will anybody care? And the answer always is, no, they don't care. They just care that you know how to design. Yeah, wow. So I think there's a lot more value in doing something that's good, that you're proud of, that represents the kind of work you'd like to do, than something that is half as good, but you were paid to do it. That doesn't mean anything, not in the early stages. Yeah, wow. And I think even in the later stages of your career, it still doesn't mean anything. Good work gets more work. That's it, period. That's so good. And yes, you still uh, talked about, you know, client. we talked about clients and stuff. So my question is, you probably get this um, asked this nine times out of ten, but how do I find clients, like actually solid clients, when you're, you know, got a bit of a portfolio together and... Okay, so the, the way that you get work, it's a very simple formula, and I've said this many times before, is you have to get known. People hire who they know, like, and trust. So you could be the world's best fill in the blank, but if nobody knows who you are, they can't find you, then you're not going to get any work. So the secret to getting work is very simple. Make it easier to find you than your competitor. Make it easier to find you versus your competitor. So you say, like, John and Mary down the street, they're doing something, they're super interesting, but they haven't worked on their Instagram. They haven't posted things on Behance. They right. haven't done anything to make it easier. They haven't done SEO optimization. They haven't done any of the basic things to make it easier to find them. They're not participating in meetups. 
They're not going to conferences and events. They're not having their portfolio reviewed. They're not sending out samples or doing cold emails or doing warm follow-ups. They're not taking out a boss or a mentor to lunch just to pick their brain. Those are the things that you do to stand out and to be recognized by people who are in a position to hire you. That's it. Yeah, wow. Really good. Um, now, another person asks, um, you talked about cold emails and stuff. So how do you turn a client's no into a yes? Okay. That's a tricky question. It's very tricky. Yeah. You have to understand why they're saying, right? You have to understand why they're saying no. No usually means one of two things. It's like it's not a good fit. So you have to understand what are their needs and are you solving their needs or they just need more information. Usually it's the latter of the two. So if they say no to your budget, maybe they need to understand what goal you're trying to solve. And right. if we start to look at the problem through the client's eyes and not our own, I think it gives us a lot of insight into how people make decisions. So think about it. Have you been in a position before yourself where somebody's asked you to do something that A, you're uncomfortable with or don't see value in that at all? And then the yeah. answer is most likely yes, you have been in a situation. So why did you feel that way? What did the person do? How did they communicate to you? And, and usually the answer will be something like this. They didn't take the time to understand what it is I need. Mm. Right. So if somebody knocks on your door and they want to sell you uh, sh- uh, carpet cleaner, shampoo for your carpets, and, and they're like pushing real hard to sell you this cleaner. And then you open the door and, and they see that all you have is hardwood floors. That's why you say. No. Yeah, true. So I think a lot of creative people walk around with a very specific skill or in a tool and they think everybody must need this thing. And then they forget there's another real life human being in front of them that actually has a real problem that needs to be solved, but you're not open to it because you're looking for a very specific thing. Yeah, that's such a good uh, An expression that I love is something like this. All right. The expression I love that I want to share with your, your listeners, your audience is this, is that you find what you're looking for. So what you look for, you find. Okay. So if you are looking for a very specific problem, you don't see anything else. You don't see that. They need a marketing campaign or they need to fix their social media account or actually everything about their design is okay, but they're really poor in customer service because you weren't looking for that kind of problem. Yeah. So you ignore it. Yeah, that's so good. I love the thing about, you know, don't sell shampoo cleaner to um, people with hardwood floor. And I think that is such a great lesson which you can apply to whether you're a designer or a entrepreneur or whatever you're doing. Well, I hope you're finding value in this conversation with Christo. This is the first episode of the Say OK Creative Podcast, and we're just getting started. We have some amazing guests coming to the show in the coming weeks, so if you haven't already and are listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, hit that subscribe button to keep up to date with all future content. We also have an Instagram profile with short snippets, quotes, and other great content on the topic of creativity, so head on over and give us a follow at Say OK Creative to join the conversation. So anyway, let's head on back to the conversation where we're talking with Christo from the future. So the next question mm-hmm. I've got is, um, how do you put boundaries in place with a client? So let's say they're really pushy and okay. um, they want to be, they kind of mm-hmm. want you to um, copy and paste someone else's design off Pinterest instead of, you know, it's kind of like that stealing over being inspired sort of conversation over again or, um, you know, they're mm-hmm. just really controlling but and want you 24-7 sort of thing. How do you put those boundaries in place? Okay. Usually people who behave and think like this tell you this upfront from the very first 
moment that they meet you. Because you need the work, because you're desperate for the work, or because you're really not good at paying attention to people. Yeah, yeah. You ignore these signals, and then you start to work with them, and you wonder, like, why are they always browbeating me? Mm. Why are they always pushing for me to work on the weekend? They told you at the very beginning, and you can read people's energy. Your gut is going to tell you what they're going to be like. So what you should do in the very first encounter is to try to envision working together with them what those days and nights are going to look like. Is this someone you're going to be happy to answer the phone when they call you at a certain period of right. time? Is this person that's ever going to be happy with the work that you do? Are they always like not sure? Are they, uh, I'll know it when I see it kind of person? Well, indecisive people don't make for good clients. Yeah. They, they, their opinion and their, and their feeling about you changes with the breeze. So one day they love it. The next day it's the worst thing they've ever seen. Are they bipolar? I mean, I'm not saying anything against bipolar people, but one, one day they're angry and happy. What? I don't understand. Yeah, for sure. So those people tend to be fairly unpredictable. I like clients who know what they want. And here, here's the rub. Usually people are very successful. Usually, not always. They yeah. know what they want. They have money to spend and they value their time. So I would say that those are the kinds of people I like to work with. I like to work with successful entrepreneurs who are open-minded, who are fair, who have a good sense of business, and are ethically bound to like act in accordance to the way that they see the world. I right. like those kinds of people. Yeah, awesome. Um, you know, I know of lots of heaps of young, uh, young creatives, and I think even business people that try to grow but seem to get capped. Um, and the general factor I've seen behind this is they don't have mentors or the mentors haven't been to the level they want to reach. What is your advice for creatives who don't uh, know anyone or can't find a mentor to help them go to that next level? Okay. You do not need a mentor. You do not okay. need a mentor. A mentor says, you, you must give me your time. In exchange, I will do something for you that who knows if it's valuable or not. I think Michael Beirut said this, just hijack your mentors. You, right. you, you basically... You, you can follow people that have no idea that you're following them. You can find a hero of yours and say, look, what are they doing? What books have they read? What podcasts have they been on? Where have they been interviewed? Where else can I get more of their content? Because here's the thing, and I'm saying this in a very broad statement, so I hope I don't offend everybody that's listening to <laughs> is most of the times people who reach out to me, who want me to mentor them, have done the least amount of work in trying to consume wow. the things I've already spent a lot of time sharing. That's so have good. they read the articles I told them to read? Have they have they watched half of our half of the videos we've made? Have they taken notes on anything? And generally, they haven't. They ask really lazy questions because they want to be spoon fed stuff. Well, yeah, guess yeah. what? If I were to take on a mentee, that's not the kind of mentee I would want to take on, anyways. That's so good. Yeah, because you've also got that uh, book list on the future website. Is that correct? That for like people, yes, yeah. I have many book lists. Yeah, I think if you haven't um, looked at that and you're looking for mentors, really, um, uh, I urge you to go and check it out. Um, it's just on your like you'll be able to see a link on your website, eh? Or where do people find that? Yeah, and if you don't know how to find it, basically, look at this, Jaden. You're gonna you're gonna probably laugh. Most of the people spend more time asking me what it is that they need to find than just actually finding it. They're yeah. Chris, I can't find your book list anywhere. I'm like, oh, let me see. Let me just double check. I go on Google, I type in Chris Doe book list, and they're the top three results. Yeah. So you there took you more time crafting that stupid message to me than it did. So you, did you have the same result? Yeah, right. I mean, if you just spent a minute just searching for it, the future Chris Doe book list, 
books to read by Chris Doe, it's going to appear. We, we try our best to make this information available. Exactly. That's so true. So that's not sending me a great message that you are a person I should pay attention to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, now, someone asks, have you ever been swayed to do anything else other than graphic, eek, they say, design? And has there been ever a point in your life <laughs> when you've been tempted to chuck the towel in? Those are two very different questions. Okay. So let me answer number one. Have I ever done anything other than graphic design? And the, and the answer is 100% yes. I do many things outside of what you consider graphic design. For example, I've designed the interior to a space as a showroom for one of my clients. Cool. I've designed the exterior to buildings for one of my clients. So design, design doesn't have the word graphic in it until you add that word in. Yeah. Design is just a means to solve problems. So you can do culture design. You can do... You can do management design. You can do innovation design. So design is just trying to figure out a novel solution to a problem. So when I said earlier before, if all you've got is carpet shampoo and that's what you're selling, that could be interpreted as one very specific form of design. For example, if you're a hand lettering artist, you do calligraphy. That's your carpet shampoo. That's what you make. For me, I, I try to go into the thing. It's like, I got nothing to sell. I want to learn about the client. What their goals and their objectives are, what they hope of becoming and listening and trying to understand why they haven't been able to achieve that. And once I identify something, I have to make a decision. Am I a good person to solve that problem or is somebody else that I know can solve right. the problem? And if it's one or the other, I direct the conversation in, in one way or the other way. And sometimes it's me who can solve the problem and sometimes it's not at all. Yeah, for sure. So... Oh. The idea of just doing graphic design, I don't need to be persuaded because I just do what needs to be done. Yeah, great. The second question is, have I ever felt like giving up and throwing in the towel? And truth be told, I have thought about that on occasion. And when you go there, it can go really dark, really fast, and you can start to question yourself. The The goal here is not to stay in that state of self-loathing, uh, but bring it back to the self-loving side. So right. when times are tough, when things aren't looking up, when you work all year and, and you, you manage a team of 18 people and there's barely any money in the bank account, you start to think about, am I just being insane? Am I just banging my head against the wall? And those are moments of truth. You have to ask yourself and dig deep within you to see if you've got this, if you can do it or not. Yeah. And some people quit and some people don't. Some people solve the problem and some people just keep repeating the problem over and mm. over. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, I received another message asking this. Um, as a young creative nearing the end of school or just beginning university, would you recommend specializing in a particular design skill early, such as graphic design or, you know, whether it's interior, calligraphy, um, photography, web design, etc., or focus on being an all-rounder? So essentially, the question was, should I specialize? Um, how do I niche down? And how specific do I go? Those are kind of a three-pointer, um, three but... Yeah. So I'm going to answer the question with a question myself, which is this. Are you getting enough work? Do you have a lot of opportunities more than you have capacity? Wow. So if you answer the question is yes, I'm getting a lot of leads. I have a lot of opportunities. Don't change what you're doing, man. If you're a specialist or journalist, just keep keep doing it. So if you're asking that question, if you're answering the question and the answer is no, I don't have a lot of leads and opportunities. Ask yourself right now. Am I a generalist or am I a specialist? Yeah. Now I'm going to predict. The vast majority of you 
are generalists. You can't get work because you show no depth, you show no mastery, you've not put in the 10,000 hours into making something and, and learning the skill. This is where the, the very difficult task of specialization comes in because you have to make the active decision to give up stuff to be better at other stuff. Yeah. So you got to give up the stuff that you're not that good at doing so that you can become better at the stuff you do like doing and that you're good at. And this is a very difficult thing for people to do, especially in the creative space. Mm. We're lateral thinkers. We don't like to stay in a vertical space. Yeah, We're for very sure. divergent in our thinking, right? So we like to bring lots of things together and probably a little dose of ADD or ADHD yeah. in there. So that's that's the real problem. If you find it that you're, it's hard for you to find opportunities, it probably is a sign that you haven't focused enough that you start to become known as the person. Not a person, but the, the person. person. So not... A graphic designer, the graphic designer. Right, not yeah. An illustrator, the illustrator. That's what you're trying to do. Yeah, that's wow. Yeah, really good. So um, uh, back to niching down. Let's say you're a, um, okay, so I'm a graphic designer um, that is working for, let's go back to the carp, um, carpet stuff. So I'm a graphic designer for a, or, you know, uh, for a sh- carpet shampooing company. Should I, how specific do I go if I want to work with a carpet company? Do I go to a point where I want to work for a carpet company that only sells brown colored carpet or how specific do you go? Oh, okay. That's a very good question. So when we start to specialize, we start to find out who we are for. The natural conclusion or the assumption that a lot of people get into is I've, I've over niched down. I've, I've made my target market so narrow. There's only five people in the world who can hire me. Now, if those five people spend a billion dollars a year in marketing and design, no problem. Yeah. One of those things will sustain you for the rest of your life. And that's a worry that a lot of people have. And and for the many years that I've been doing this, I've yet to meet a single person who's over a niche, like it hasn't has gone down so narrow that there are no clients left to support you. Yeah. So when you think you've niched down so much that you can't go anymore, go a little bit more. Right. You're trying to get into this ideal zone where there's somewhere between 20 to 100 kind of clients who can hire you. That's a good number. Right. Because once you start to establish expertise there, right, 20 to 100 people can hire you. Once you are able to service them, what's really cool is people who meet you and say, well, you don't do exactly what it is that I want, but you do that thing really well. They assume, they assume you're good at everything. It's called the halo bias, right? Yeah. When somebody's really good at one thing, you think they're automatically good at other things. So when they see that like, you're a really good lettering artist, they may offer you to design their packaging. Cool. Or their signage or their website. But the opposite is also a thing you need to watch out for. So when you show no, no real skill at doing anything, they assume you're bad at all things. Yeah. This is the power of niching and specialization. Awesome. Okay, now this is the following thing. It's kind of a generalist statement, and I know lots of creatives are going to get annoyed or it doesn't apply to them, but I think the majority of creatives are perfectionists and over-analytical to a certain extent. I heard you say that the number one thing that is wrong with young people is that we think we have a lot of time. This following question is coming from a university student studying design, but I think it applies to literally every type of creative, whether you're a writer, musician, entrepreneur, or whatever. How do you get over a creative block with working with deadlines? Okay, so deadlines are the thing that makes you deliver. Otherwise, all of us work on all projects forever. Yeah. And I believe this. 
that creativity expands and contracts to meet deadlines. We've done some of our best work at very short deadlines and some of our worst work with really long deadlines because we start to second guess, we start to kick things around and we lose the 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 kind of raw energy, the passion, the the pressure that you feel from delivering something and we just spread it out so thin that it just becomes an uninspired piece of work. I don't look at deadlines as, as a problem. I look at, at them as friends. So when something is due in 24 hours, do the best that you can, given the time, make decisions quicker, and you'll be surprised at the results that you get. I'll make this real, real for you, for everybody, as a concrete thing. It used to take me about eight hours to craft an Instagram carousel post. And I would do this once every two or three days because I have to work. Yeah. I have to do other things. I have a team to check in on, right? But I made it a challenge. I made a challenge to myself. I made it my mission to get to X number of followers by the end of the year. So I did the math. I had to post twice a day. Now, I cannot dedicate 16 hours a day to do Instagram posts for any long stretch yeah, of definitely. time. So I did something very different. I said to myself, between now and lunchtime, I'm not going to eat. I'm not allowed to eat until I finish a post. Wow. So that deadline made me think faster, made me commit to things. And, you know, I learned something. By giving myself less time, I designed better carousels. Well, how is that possible? Well, what I was doing was I was over obsessing and packing in too much information when I was working on it for eight hours. I thought that can't be enough. I'm going to add more. And those posts are underperforming the ones that take me 15 minutes to do. Why? Because I respect the audience's time. When they're swiping through the carousel, they're moving pretty quickly. Yeah. So when I overpack each slide, I lose the audience. And that's the opposite of what I want to do. Yes, yeah, so good. Um, you know, what I love about the arts is that like, there's not one finite solution, coming back to the thing where we talked about timeframes and stuff. Um, but on the negative side of that, you know, there's not one finite solution, is that there isn't a right or wrong answer. Uh, the thing I know which um, young creatives tend to struggle with is the fear of rejection, dealing with a client or boss who thinks your creative solution isn't just like the right one. Um, and I'm a massive fan of Paula Schur from Pentagram. Do you know Paula? Of course. Yeah. Um, and if you're a graphic designer and listening and haven't heard of Paula, I recommend hopping onto Netflix and watching uh, this episode of Abstract The Art of Design. And there's an uh, episode all about her, and it's really good. But anyway, she talks about the line of the reasonable level of expectation. You know, you begin to present, you go way above the line, and that's like the max height of appreciation. Someone makes a rebuttal slightly below the line, and then you make some concessions, and you get slightly lower, and that's like the highest point. Um, and you, you need to end that meeting, uh, the meeting at that point, otherwise it's going to fluctuate further and further under the line until, you know, you get to that point she calls sudden death. So, Chris, how do you deal with criticism failure when working with um, stakeholders? The way that I'm able to do this with criticism is I don't attach myself. I don't attach my ego, my identity, my wants, hopes, and styles. Whatever it is I, I fashion myself after, I don't attach that to the work. The work is a byproduct of what it is that I, I think and do. If I trim my toenails, I'm not sad that I lost the toenail, which yeah, is an yeah. artifact of me. It was just a marker in time. Right. right. And we, we think about this. Maybe when you're growing up, your mom or dad might have marked a wall uh, or part on the wall with a pencil saying, this is how tall you were at six years old. This is how tall you were at eight years old. And that's just a marker. So the work that you create is a reflection of your worldview at this moment in time. 
granted, if you look at the work that you did three years ago, you're probably going to be disgusted by the work you did. Yeah. Because you've grown. Your tastes have changed. You've matured. And you're going to keep doing this for the rest of your life. So why become obsessed with the work that you're doing right now? This just represents a moment in time, a sliver of your creativity. So when I create work, I first remember it. This is not for me. It's for my client. And I'm here to solve a problem. So if they're being critical, it's because I've misunderstanding. I, I misunderstood the problem and I, I've, I've created something that they don't want or like. So I have to understand. Let's go back to my misunderstanding. What is it that you want? And I'll work with that. Otherwise, when they give you feedback, when they give you a critique or criticism, you push that away, you reject it, you can't hear it, and your relationship is strained. Now, you're not going to get any closer to, to the answer by, by ignoring what the clients want. They're, at the end of the day, driving. Yeah. So you have to pay attention to what's going on. Don't, I don't invest emotionally into the work once I'm done with it. I just let it go. Cool. Um, and a follow-up for that, a listener asks, how do you measure the, uh, the success of each completed project or piece um, of design work? I usually feel very satisfied when I feel like I've delivered something that solves the problem to the best of my ability, to the budget I was given, with the deadline that was handed, and that the client also understands and appreciates the same thing that I do. Cool. Um, and I think once we get to a point where there are, um, you know, more, that's awesome work, I love it, then, um, you know, that's real average, what is that sort of thing from stakeholders, we can get quite complacent sometimes. And then someone asks, how do you prevent complacency um, within your work? Well, if you do work as a reflection of the skills you've already learned, you can come, become pretty complacent pretty quickly. I always look at projects and assignments and new clients as an opportunity to learn something new. It doesn't have to be earth-shattering, world-shifting new. It could just be, oh, I didn't know that you could use that tool in Illustrator to make this thing because I spent the time to yeah. look at it. So my goal in creating projects isn't so much to finish it. It's actually to enjoy the process itself and learn as much as I can while doing it. This makes me a happier, healthier person. Cool. And so following on from that, what are some practical things you do to find new perspectives and creativity that help you become more creative, as um, people could say, than you already are? The number one secret for me in creativity that could be applied to anybody, whether you're 16 years old in high school still or you are in the third part of your like career. The, the secret to all of this is to give yourself a platform, an opportunity to create work with very short deadlines and so that you can iterate over and over again and you can learn from what it is that you do. One other component to this secret, which is you have to be able to get feedback from people. So if you iterate in a room, you don't know if it's working or not. You have to put the work out into the world. You, you could share it on some platform anywhere in a gallery, on social media, on Instagram, or whatever, and see, is this tracking well? Are people engaged with the content? Are they sharing it with friends? Are they bookmarking it? And if they are, start to ask yourself, yeah. why? Why do people like this post versus that post? Why did this one underperform it? Why did that one really just blow it out of the water? Once you start to figure this thing out, you're going to learn so much and you're going to start to innovate. The key here is not to become precious with your work, and, and rather than make one project in, in a thousand days, make a thousand pro projects in a thousand yeah, cool. days. Awesome. Um, you've had a pretty amazing career and have the op uh, had the opportunity to work, uh, grow an awesome agency, work with amazing clients. You've got an awesome YouTube channel that inspires hundreds of thousands of creatives and entrepreneurs. 
Um, and in the words of Gary Vaynerchuk, you've crushed it. How are some ways that you stand out, become more successful, and what steps would you take to, um, to become more, uh, to take to achieve your goals better? Okay, so the word successful means different things to different people. So I think it's important that each person's listeners have a clear definition of what success looks like to them. Let me give you an example. If your definition of a success is, I need to make $100,000 a year, well, then you're going to figure out how to get there. If your definition of success is to pay your bills and spend more time with your mom who's ill and, and your, your family, your, your little one and your, your spouse, well, that's successful. So you have to learn how to manage that. And, and it could just be all about relationships for you or achieving a certain kind of peer recognition. So success is dependent on each person to define. But if you want to have a shot at achieving it, you must know what it is. So we all could use a little bit more time thinking about what it is we want from life and writing it down and making that part of our habit or routine to say, this is what I want. These are the steps that I need to take to get there and to hold yourself accountable, to measure as you go and make adjustments to say, over time, your plan can change. Even the goal can change, but at least you're aware of it. And I think that's a big problem for a lot of people. They kind of wander around in life, hoping to find a goal, hoping to find a purpose. But I'd rather have a plan than hope. Yeah, cool. Um, now, your agency Blind has done some amazing work for some major names. And I've got a few questions here related to the business side of things. So the first question is, what is some practical okay. advice you would give to an aspiring entrepreneur? It's a massive question. But the practical advice I would give, yeah, that's kind of an open question, but... I'll try. When you're starting out as an entrepreneur, I'm going to assume you're some kind of creative person, is that you need to learn to think like entrepreneurs. You need to think like a business person. That all the things that you were taught in school may not be as relevant as you think. Like there's a law of diminishing return in improving the craft if you want to be an entrepreneur. What you do need to do is to learn how to speak the language of business. You need to understand what key metrics matter to your clients. You have to understand marketing, branding, positioning, strategy, sales and negotiations and bidding. Those are the kinds of things that you typically do not learn in a design education. And if you learn that, then you can speak the language of business people. And they're going to feel like, well, hey, we kind of know each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. And you understand me. And you get me. And you're not talking about Pantone 477 <laughs> coded. Or coded, I'm sorry. And you're not talking about which version of what typeface is the superior yeah. cut. Because at the end of the day... They just don't yeah, care. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, now, you talk about branding being more than a logo, um, a name, etc. Yeah, so a lot of people use the word branding synonymously with identity design or logo. It's become so uh, ingrained in us that we're like, that's a cool brand, man. And we don't even understand what that means. A, a brand is a gut feeling. It's like what people feel about a company and the way that that is communicated to them is this totality of everything that they've come to experience with a specific product or service. So that means that the product is well-made and well-designed, that the packaging is good, that when they bought it in the store, the customer service was amazing. If they had a problem, somebody followed up with them. And over time, you start to expect certain relationship and patterns of behavior that then you choose one company's brand over another. So designers get out in the world and they just make a thing. You make a logo. You design a poster and you think I'm doing branding now. Well, you need to understand that it's just one small sliver of many, many things. Because no matter how good you are at designing a mark, let's just say objectively, 
you've designed the world's best logo, a mark, but the company behind it talks to their clients in, 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 a, in a way that's not conducive to building strong relationships. They're dishonest. They, they break their promises. Their products fall apart. They don't return your phone calls. Well, are you really designing a brand? No, you design a mark. So this is where I think we all need to take a step back and say, first, let's use the right terminology. That helps us out a lot. And if we desire to be in the branding space, we'll start to investigate and spend time learning about what that is. And then you can actually participate in those discussions in an informed way. Awesome. Yeah, now I've got another question about business. Um, so someone asks, what was the biggest mistake, downfall or trial you've faced in your business and how did you recover from it? Okay, very good questions. A couple of mistakes that I made. I will tell you the biggest mistake I made, which was when there was times of feast, when, when it was the dot-com boom yeah. of the early 2000, late 1990s. It was amazing time. There, there were so many clients calling us for work that the only way we could get some control over our schedule was to keep doubling our rates. And we would just say, like, whatever the budget is, tell them we want double. Wow. And they would say yes. No way. So it, it got to my head. It got to my head in the sense that I thought that this was going to happen forever, that this would never run out, that we finally figured out the secret formula to the universe, and we're just bringing in so much money. It's ridiculous. Like we were back then buying um, the LED displays from Apple, which wow. was $4,000 yeah, a cheap. piece <laughs> for everybody in the office. Like, boom, everybody, you guys get a display. It's like Oprah. And that's what we're doing. <laughs> the mistake... Yes, the, the mistake that I made was assuming that in this time, it would last forever. And of course it didn't because the dot-com bubble burst and then the money went away. And then that made me realize that in times of feast, you should not take it for granted. You should expand your capacity. You should make some risky business decisions to either acquire different talent or do different things because it's going to eventually end. And when it does... You've prepared yourself with the right team, with the right business model, and I didn't do that. So that was one big mistake. The other big mistake that I make on a fairly consistent basis is trusting people when I shouldn't trust them and not reading the contracts carefully enough. Right, yeah. Cool. Now, we've got a few little uh, extra questions here. What is the most fulfilling part of your job? Today, the most fulfilling part of my job is to be able to help people that I've never met and probably in, in, it can never, ever repay me for what it is that I'm doing. I'm sharing very openly, very transparently, how you run a creative business, the skills that I've acquired in the past, and as I'm learning in real time, sharing that in the most open way that I can. And, and to me, to get the messages, the DMs that people send me, and saying, you, you've helped me accomplish X, Y, and Z, like in very tangible terms, when they say, I used to charge $300 for a logo, and now I'm doing projects that are 30K, you've, you've genuinely and it materially impacted my life and the, and the people that I care about. So thank you. So when they say that to me, that is the best part of my job. Awesome. Okay, now we've got three quick fire questions here. So um, I'm going to make these real quick. Um, number one, okay. what has been your greatest moment or highlight in working in the design field? Probably working on a music video for the Ravenettes. Cool. Uh, number two, what is the most fulfilling part of your job? Same thing again. Um, but yeah, if you could quickly just put it into one word. Helping people achieve their dreams right and number three what is the single piece of advice you would give to a young creative uh, don't be so afraid of putting yourself out there embrace the platforms that exist even if they might not work out awesome 
Well, that's all the questions we've got for you, Chris. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the first ever episode of the Say OK Creative Podcast. It's been an absolute honor to have you on. And I'm sure people are going to be like blown away and really um, blessed by what you've shared with us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Say OK Creative Podcast. I hope you've learned a thing or two to help you on your creative journey. Once again, thank you to Christo for joining us. And make sure to go give him a follow on Instagram and Twitter. And make sure to share this podcast with your friends, colleagues, and family. And make sure you join us next Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Once again, this is the Say OK Creative Podcast, and I'll see you next week.